Um, we're going to read uh, from God's Word uh, the end of, of Nehemiah. It's Nehemiah chapter 13, uh, lucky for some. Um, 499 in the church Bibles, I think, is what you uh, have. Um, 499 in the church Bible, and it's uh, the whole chapter we're going to be looking at uh, together. Nehemiah chapter 13. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned that curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were from foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, him of the fox insult, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contribution for the priest. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out why I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem are bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. And not in a nice way. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O my God and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of their other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. 
I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we now hear now that you are doing the same terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priests of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favour, O my God. This is the word of the Lord, and I know it's a long reading, but it's good to read it together. It has a power, uh, which we trust in as the Spirit moves uh, with us today. Um, It's also um, something which is, this is going to sound really mean. With Jeff and Neil away, I want to tell you a little secret, which is that I think, um, in advance of a building project, preaching through Nehemiah is a terrible idea. Terrible idea. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, he's gone wild. But I want to try and be very clear. Um, I'm not saying it has not got good things to say to us as a church, and I'm sure that some of you, after 13 chapters of hearing about it being linked to a building project, may start to feel fatigued. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe some of you are thinking, well, that's Jerusalem, this is Long Crenden Chapel. Isn't there not a difference between the holy city of God and where we are now? I'm not talking about all of that. I'm not trying to be difficult or naughty. I think it's had great things to say. My point is that Nehemiah 13 does not finish well. If you are trying to preach people to encourage them to do a building project, it would be better if it finished at 12. (laughs) Genuinely. With praising and triumph and the people united as one, joyful praise, unity, God's people of promise in the promised city, with the temple as promised, promising God's presence. That's a lot of promise. And yet you get 13. And that's a problem for me. Because in one sense, I could summarise the book of Nehemiah saying this, if I was talking about a building project, and I'm not going to keep talking about a building project after this. So the people are in a state, they're wondering where to go, they want leadership for the future, they're desperate to grow again, tired of being weak, want to have an influence on their local area, but they're in a state, don't know how to do it. God raises Nehemiah, a mighty man of God, a man of clear leadership with the ability to print lovely leaflets. He comes and tells the church, or the people of God, what to do. They unite together, they give, they sacrifice, they work hard. They get stuck in, they build the walls, they're built into a people of God. They purify themselves under Nehemiah the law, and God's word is read again. They unite in praise and worship at the wonders of God. And despite it being a book where you see no direct miracles, it's clear that God is at work in his people. They gather, the stage is set then for a triumphal finish. The walls are in place, the gates are in place, no fox will climb above these walls, they're fully complete. The temple is provisioned, once again God's people will be there to worship God. And yet if I was encouraging you with a building project I would say, and yet nothing changed. They were the same people in a slightly bigger city with a better looking temple, but nothing had changed. That's why it might be a terrible thing. And yet here is the challenge, and I know that Jeff and Neil have been faithful uh, with God's word, because we know, don't we, that actually the vision is not for the building. The vision is for the building of a people of God here in this place. 
Actually, I want to try and encourage you as we finish today that what I'm going to try and challenge you about is actually don't start to think once the building's here, everything will be fine. Because I think Nehemiah finishes well for us. Because it challenges us to say, actually, you keep pressing on. You don't compromise. You don't slip. You don't slip back into hoping it will bring people in. You remain the people of God that you were called to be from the very beginning. That's why I'm going to try and challenge you this morning. I want to encourage you to say that actually, even in the process now, where it might be difficult for the next few months, that actually you keep pressing on. That you don't turn against each other. You live in unity and love together. And you press on and you press on and you reach out. I think it's a great book in the advance of a building project, but I think it's a great book any time. Because actually any time a church takes their eyes off who they're meant to be as God's people and start just doing rather than being and reaching out, something has gone very, very wrong. Right, let's get into this really quickly, uh, not quickly, but thoroughly this morning, um, and uh, we'll do this together. Um, I'm not very good at keeping promises. Um, I, I'm the sort of person that loves to please People, I, I will promise anything just to get you to kind of go, yeah, wicked, eh? he's really good. Um, people who know me well will know that when I say one o'clock, I actually mean quarter past one. Uh, that's, that's paddy time, as people in Cornerstone call it. I say, I'll see you at one. They say, yes, quarter past one will be fine. Um, I say to Claire, I'll pick up the children. That's not a problem today. And then the school phone up Claire and she picks up the children sometimes because Zach's the last one left. Um, however, it has also um, kind of followed through in my family. And I want to try and do a demonstration uh, for you this morning. Um, Noah, our middle one, who's two years old, um, is a very affectionate little boy. Um, sometimes with Lily, he is over-affectionate. For the first month and a half, he was fascinated by the small, throbbing soft bit on her head. And he would poke it, like this. In a loving way, but quite firmly. And we would say, Noah, don't do that. Please promise us that you won't do it. And he would say, yes. Yes, I will not. Not. Yes, not. And then you'd come in the next time, and his fingers would be further in her soft bit on her head. Uh, this morning, in fact, despite telling him to look after his little sister and be nice to her, um, Claire walked into the room, and this is a demonstration. Um, this is what Lily looked like this morning. <laughs> Noah had placed a cushion cover over her head, rather in the manner of some kind of evil interrogator. By the time Claire got there, she was coughing and snotty, um, and Noah was very pleased with himself. We made him promise not to do it again, and yet he was not very good at keeping his promises. It seems that my genes run deep in him. I want to try and challenge you, though, today to say, well, how good are you uh, at keeping your promises? Because if you are a believer here today, your beginning of, of faith began with promises. It works both ways. We are still a covenant people, a new covenant now, sure, but a covenant people, a people of promise. God promises to be our God, we to be his people. How good are you at keeping your promises? I'm not very good at keeping mine, both in faith. I'm an unclean man with unclean lips and an unclean heart lots of the times. And I have a, a pattern of faith that seems to go up and down and up and down. Is that you this morning? Are you the sort of person that looks at highs and lows, but you don't really seem to get anywhere. A bit like the people in Nehemiah. Is it going to be that in three years' time you'll be the same, in six years' time you'll be the same, nine years' time you'll be the same? When you trace your walk of faith up to this point, is it an upward trajectory or is it just the same old, same old? Highs and lows, same old. I want to try and give you something to remember um, as a little cheesy hook. Uh, it might help you to remember the rest of what we're saying. Here is what it is. It says, if your knack is falling back, make a plan and attack. If your knack is falling back, 
make a plan and attack. I know it's slightly cheesy, but can you tell that to the person next to you as a way of trying to remember? Because I don't want to prepare and preach something which you forget after lunch. So, tell the neighbour next to you, if your knack is falling back, make a plan and attack. Now, thank you. If you haven't got anyone next to you, just say it to yourself. Let's say it one more time together. Ready? One, two, three. If your knack is falling back, make a plan and attack. This is from Nehemiah. Um, I love Nehemiah. I don't know if you, you read what a strong man he was when he came back. When he'd seen that God's people had fallen back into disgrace again, did you see he made a plan? He followed through and he did what brought God's people back to a position of health again. Now you need to remember something about Nehemiah. Nehemiah lived in a foreign country because in his ancestors had done precisely what he was seeing the people doing before him. Imagine the power for Nehemiah, knowing that he was a man of exile, precisely because God's people had not put God first, and had not worshipped him as they should, and hadn't kept the Sabbath, and had gone after other gods. The reason why Noah may seem a bit extreme when he comes back, is that he's coming back from a place he didn't want to be in, but where he served God faithfully, seeing the people doing the same old thing. Their knack was for falling back, and so he made a plan and he attacked. We're going to do that briefly uh, together today. So I've already asked you, is your kind of faith walk where you would dream it would have been? If I said to you when you became a Christian, this is where you will be today, is this where you hoped and dreamed it would be? Is your faith stronger? Is it deeper? Does it carry you through times of suffering and hurt, are you more joyful as you come towards Easter, or is it just the same old, same old? I want to challenge you today that actually there are attitudes we see in God's people here in Jerusalem that maybe uh, we can be challenged by. It's quite a challenging uh, passage for us today. Uh, Do you feel like things are moving on? And if not, can I challenge you today to make a plan and attack the sin that lingers in our life? Because this stuff is quite, well, it just sits there. That's the danger of this kind of stuff. It just sits there. We excuse it and we allow it and it just sits there. Let's just have a a really brief look. What are we talking about? Some things uh, never change. Nehemiah 13, uh, 4 to 9 talk about uh, Tobiah. Do you remember Tobiah? He was the guy that had teased the building project. He was the one that had said, call that a wall, even foxes would be able to climb over that. One of the greatest insults in all of ancient literature. And yet here he is given a private room in the temple, not just any room, a room where the storehouse for keeping the offerings should have been. Now, we're not quite sure whether Eliashib had given him the room and then prevented offerings coming in, or if the offerings had stopped and therefore it was unused and therefore he gave him the room. Either way is not a healthy situation. And I want to try and challenge you firstly today that some things never change. Because, I don't know about you, but I have people like Tobiah, and I have Tobiah in me. It's that same old voice that says to you, don't do that. Do something else. Don't honour God. Do something else. You think, this is Tobiah, he's unchanged. He's now living in the place he teased and mocked from afar, and he's close to the high priest, and through marriage even related to him. Imagine the power and the influence Tobiah had on Eliashib. Maybe that's why the nation was in a bit of a state. Maybe it was that Eliashib started to hear Tobiah's voice just whispering in his ear, telling him, actually, don't do it what Nehemiah said. Don't stick to the law. Do this. That room is good. Maybe I could use that. Maybe I could be there. I want to try and challenge you that actually some things never change. God's people hadn't figured out that people like Tobiah, who was not part of God's people, shouldn't be there. 
It may be for you when you look at your faith, and if your faith has a knack of falling back, actually, that the part of the problem is that you are still surrounded by people who are no good for you. It may be sat here this morning that actually, it may be that it's not people, but something from your past that you've never shifted, that was a, a painful bit of the past. Maybe this morning you sit here and you think, actually, I've never shifted that. I've actually given it a room. I'm letting it lodge in my heart. I'm letting those people have an influence on me. Maybe that's you this morning. Now, I'm not trying to say as a church we need to pull away from the world and not be in it. Obviously, we need to be a missional people. But if their voice is louder than the voice of God in your life, if their voice is the one that you tend to follow, if rather than being an example, especially younger guys and some of the older ones too, if you're not the the pace setter and you let other people set your pace, it's no surprise that you'll have a knack for falling back. Some things have never changed. And you read at the start of the chapter that actually the people of God had got it. They read the law. They realized that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be there, verse 1. And so they did something about it. They made a plan and it was good initially. And yet you then straight away read that it wasn't all the people that got kicked out. It wasn't. Just the ones they weren't related to or didn't owe something to or weren't close to. And for some of us, I think this is the same thing. We have a knack for falling back because we're okay going some way to to seek purity in our lives. There are certain habits and voices that we're happy to distance ourselves from, and yet there are others that we're a bit too comfortable with and which we still feel have a hold over us or a power over us. I want to challenge you that some things never change because we have Tobias in our lives, and maybe it's worth thinking about who those might be for you. Secondly, some things never change. In the offerings, if we have a look at this, in verse 10 to 13. God's people were challenged to be a generous people, a people that provided for their priests to enable them to to full-time work in the temple. But God's people were a faithless people. They neglected the house of God for their own ends. Can I challenge some of you, especially in the world and the part of the world we live in, which is a nice part of the country to live, that actually for some Christians, that the one thing that holds them back is their view of money. And I want to challenge you that actually the way we give is not just about paying back to God. It's a mark of our trust in him. And this isn't to say give everything away unless God calls you to do so. It's not to say something about 10%, 12%, whatever the percentages are. I want to try and challenge you that actually your attitude to money and your attitude to God's provision for you says a lot about you. And for some of you, your knack of falling back is actually caused by, by that. That's the one thing for you. Or similarly, because these are offerings for for God's house, some of you, when you come here, you don't give your all. Whether it's hurt from the past or or hidden sin or whatever it is, something holds you back as you come. You want to give everything, but you can't, and therefore distance is kept. Do you notice that, that by not giving offerings, worship ceased? Do you notice that? The Levites weren't there. The storehouses were empty. The things used in worship were taken away. One small thing, it probably didn't seem a big thing to people. Ah, it's okay, other people will give. Other people will provide, it won't be a problem. And yet this was about the church together saying we have faith and trust in God. And this is how we show it, one way. And God has told us to do this, to provide for his people. On a flip side, and it's been interesting, um, I spent yesterday helping a lady from our house move house, uh, from our church move house. Um, Dee was baptised, some of you saw, and thank you for coming down, those of you who did. Um, uh, Dee was baptised a month ago, and, and her face looks different when you see her out and about. She looks relaxed and, and kind of healthy and happy. And miraculously, her house, which was in a state, uh, she's managed to do a swap, and we were moving her yesterday. And it was lovely looking around her house, seeing some of the things that people from the church had given her. And she doesn't make a big deal of it, but you can kind of tell. They're the kind of slightly newer looking things, or the things that she puts in pride of place. 
I want to try and challenge you, as, especially in these tough economic times, that if we cease to be generous to each other, not just by giving to the church, but in the way we spend our time and our gifts and our, our money together even to support each other for those that are in need, that can hold us back. Because actually, love is more than just the words we speak. Love is the way we bear together and give together. And I know that you're a generous church, so don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to have a go. I want to challenge you to, to keep pressing on in that. And for some of you who do lots of other really good things, can I challenge you to think about your money today, the offerings today, the quality of your offering as you come in, both song and action, because that can be something that holds you back. 15 to 22, they'd forgotten the Sabbath. I want to challenge all of us, and I challenge myself today as someone who is printing frantically this morning some Easter flyers off, that we have forgotten the Sabbath. Now, whatever your view of it is here, and there'll be a range of views about what should and shouldn't be done, there is something absolutely right about saying this day is different. That as I come to church today, this day is different. It's absolutely right that we should do so. It's absolutely right and important, and I get so worried about some of the people in my church and myself too, when we see emails passing back and forward at one in the morning, two in the morning when we see people who are going from church straight to work, when we see a struggle in this country to keep working and keep working and to be told you must work and you must work and you must work, there is a tiredness that spreads in the church and a fatigue because people aren't resting. Also, in this passage, and I'm not trying to skip over it, do you notice that that by selling and buying on the Sabbath, worship stopped? The quality offering stopped because by nature people were out and about and weren't where they should be. And it's amazing that they're buying things for themselves and not giving it to the temple. It's a bigger problem. It's something has switched. It's not just about not giving. It's about gaining and collecting. For some of you, I want to challenge you that the reason why your pattern of faith, and I include myself in this one, goes like this and like this, is that you do well and you do well and you fill your time up and then you get tired and then you crash. And then you get tired and then you get crash. And you get tired with church and then you crash. And at that point you move church and the cycle begins again. It's tough. I want to challenge you in this, that the Sabbath's important. It shows us that actually God is number one. It gives us time to rest and enjoy his presence too. I want to challenge you that some things hadn't changed. And for some of you, I would challenge you to look at your, your, just your week. Because it feels like, if, if, you, if it feels like your faith is not going anywhere, it may be that actually your time is, is better spent doing some other things, some other activities, and maybe even stopping. Uh, lastly, lastly. 23 to 28, marriage. This is a tough one. Um, in terms of God's people, uh, the challenge was that the children weren't even learning the stories of God's people. They wouldn't have learned the mistakes. This is 23 to 28. They, more than that, weren't teaching uh, what it meant to be God's people in that place. Um, it also, other gods were, were brought in and it diluted and distracted. And you need to remember that all of these, I put some little verses against it. In chapter 10, these are all the things that the people promised they would not do. This isn't just an accidental slipping. What hurts Nehemiah more is that in verse 10, 32, they said, we won't have foreigners, we'll be a pure people of God. In 39, they said, we will offer and give to the temple. In 31, they said, we'll have a Sabbath day. In 10, 30, we'll honour our marriages just in our people. And they'd slipped straight away. That's why it hurt. And for some of you too, The reason why, and it's similar to the people you surround yourself with, but the reason why you're not going anywhere is that that special person in your life, although you've talked about, oh, it will work, you understand where I come from, actually you are the one that needs to set the pace in that relationship. For for some of you here as well, where we become a little bit slack as to uh, whether we're marrying or not, and it's not because they're bad or, or not good people, 
that the, the challenge is to say, well, how can we spur each other on in the faith? How can our home be a place of hospitality where God is glorified? How can we be a people of God both here and at home? And, and we need to share those things together. Can I challenge some of you to, to take seriously? If, if, and, you know, and God works in all kinds of ways. In, in the Old Testament, we see, especially in this passage, Solomon, who was loved by God despite messing up in this way, and God who had used him mightily despite kind of having different issues by marrying foreign women, verse 26. Despite God doing all that, the challenge was to form relationships that are good for you. Some of you younger guys, I want to challenge you especially. I want to challenge you as your teenagers here looking on today. It's easy to think, well, I'm, yeah, I'm not thinking about marriage yet. I'm not thinking about the future yet. It doesn't really matter. We're not going anywhere. And yet I would challenge you that the way you start sets your finishing direction. If you start a race one degree off, in a few hours' time you'll be far away from where you're meant to be. Can I challenge you to have high standards in your relationships? To, to, to think seriously about what it means to wait until God provides someone special who you know shares this faith thing. Can I challenge you younger guys? Can I challenge you parents as well to encourage and talk and pray for your kids in that too? But adults too, we're, we're guilty of this, aren't we? So I encourage you to think through that. Right, we're nearly there. So, moving on. Those are the things that never changed. Um, and we can summarise them in this different way. So, I want to try and challenge you to say that, that in Nehemiah 13, 4-9, bad company corrupts your vision. Bad company uh, corrupts your vision. I want to encourage you, if you're in a time where your faith often just falls back and you've got a knack for that, your plan of attack is to say, well actually the reason that's dangerous is that after a while my vision about who God is, about what my life should be like, the way I live, gets obscured. Can I challenge you that that's part of the problem? That for God's people here, having Tobiah in the storehouse was leading them astray. That Eliashib as the priest was meant to have clear vision for who they were meant to be, and yet it wasn't happening. Bad company corrupts vision. Secondly, Greed corrupts your faith because you rely on money and not on God. The Bible says you cannot serve two masters. You will love one or hate the other. When you are a people here and offerings are being asked for, can I challenge you not to think about what's it going towards, what will it be given to, I'll give if it's this or if it's this, but not if it doesn't match with this. Can I challenge you that first and foremost, the way you give shows your heart attitude to money. It's between you and God. And I want to challenge some of you to think about that this morning, that greed actually corrupts the ability to have a faith in a God because it shows I do trust you, but only this much, and I'll rely on my money for the next. Thirdly, overwork corrupts your joy. I think this is the state of the UK church now. You wonder why we're weak and tired. It's because we're weak and tired. Bottom line. That actually, some of you are so tired here that the minute someone starts talking, it's hard to keep your eyes open. Now, I'm aware that I'm not always easy to listen to. But it may just be that actually some of you need to think, well, what time did I get to bed last night? Well, and this sounds really, it's like a simple thing. But if some of you were up until two or three in the morning, maybe you're not giving your best. Actually, when you come here, what does it mean? What's special about this? How do you come bringing the best you are? What is your morning routine like when you come out to church? Is it stressy and just full of difficulties? How can you attack it? How can you make sure when you come here, you are at your very best? That the quality of your offering is not a tired little lamb, but someone that's willing to come. Can I challenge some of you? Think about how overwork has corrupted your joy. And some of you, how overwork in the church, doing good church things, steals your joy of who you are, because you are serving the king. And I know that after a while it feels like when there's so much to do and you feel like no one else is stepping up, that that steals your joy. I want to challenge some of you, especially this morning, about that. And lastly, bad relationships corrupt your holiness. Um, in terms of in marriage, uh, in this story in Nehemiah, we see that, that God's people, the children, were, were, were falling far away uh, from the people they should have been. Bad relationships have corrupted their holiness. Don't let it linger. 
Initially, when you read this story, it might seem like these are just small things. Tobiah in, Tobiah in the temple, just a small thing. The offering is just a small thing. Sabbath, just a small thing. Relationships, just a small thing. These are massive things because they strike at the heart of who you're saying God is in your life. So what are you going to do about it? What, we can, what can we do? Let's make a plan and attack. Nehemiah is brutal as he comes, and here we are very quickly. Uh, I want you to challenge you, some of you today, kick out that negative voice. Verse 13, 8 and 9. Let's read this together just briefly. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobias household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and put them back as they should have been. Some of you, if you know there is a voice that is strong in your life, causing you to doubt or pulling you away from God, kick it out. It's time. For some of you, that's been a voice that has been there for many years, whether it's a critical voice from the past or just someone who you just know is not helpful for you in terms of making you the person you should be. Just kick it out. Now, I'm not saying physically that Nehemiah does. Nehemiah's allowed. He's special. But, but actually distance yourself from it. With love, but distance yourself from it. Because for some of you, that's why you keep falling back. Secondly, uh, look out for a positive example. I love the fact that when it came to giving in 1313, um, you read this. Um, I put uh, Zadok, uh, Padiah, Hanan, Mataniah, uh, and others who I consider trustworthy in charge of this. Uh, if giving um, is difficult for you, um, can I encourage you, and I think it's a good thing anyway, to find someone in the faith who's trustworthy, who you admire for their generous spirit, to hold you accountable. Find someone that's trustworthy, just to, to be alongside, to say, I struggle with this area of my life. Can you just get alongside me and encourage me to, to give as I should? Just between the two of you and God, find some people that can help you in this path. Pray to God for forgiveness and then seek to give and have someone who is trustworthy who can be a positive example for you. Look out for a positive example. Kick out that negative voice. Look out for a positive example. Can I encourage some of you to think about resting up and honouring God? That's 13, uh, 20 to 21. Nehemiah blocked out the people that were causing the Sabbath to be broken. Some of you, turn off your Blackberries come Saturday night at half past nine or ten o'clock. Don't log on to your emails after that time. I know it seems like a simple thing. Block the doors so those people can't come in and break your Sabbath. Think about your habits you have on your Sabbath day. If you work Sundays and you have to work Sundays, don't be a sort of person that says, well, it's okay because I can take another day to have as my Sabbath. Well, take that other day as your Sabbath. I've not met one person who says, I don't do Sundays, but I will do another day who actually has. Make time for God. This is, this is important. This is what you're made to be. Worship God. Enjoy him. Rest. Rest up and honour God. Uh, encourage you, um, especially some of us leaders here, when we come to church on Sundays, it's easy to start doing business with each other, isn't it? You know, we see each other in the offices and things. I would challenge us as a leadership team to take seriously what it means to have a Sabbath day here where we come as God's people to rest. Um, and I'll ask us to think about that because I've been challenged as I run around doing business on Sunday mornings that maybe I am the fish seller rushing in. Uh, lastly, shake up what is comfortable. Uh, for God's people, when they start to do these relationships, it might have just been comfortable. Well, they're nice people. They've lived around us for a long time. They're close to us. Let's, let's spring clean this Easter. Let's think about kicking out those voices that, 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 that pull us back. Let's think about positive examples we can sit with. Let's, let's think about the rest, the way we can rest. And let's shake up becoming a comfortable people of God. That's what this book's about. That's really, really important because otherwise in eight years' time we'll be in the same place. Twelve years' time we'll be in the same place. So let's do some of those things and I pray that you would see that God wants to build you up as a people. And that starts today, it starts tomorrow. It's not in 400 days, although it's exciting to hear. It starts now.